0: This show is brought to you by the guys at bullbitcoin.com if you're in canada and you want to buy bitcoin this is the place to do it bull bitcoin is a non-custodial exchange which means when you make the purchase order you input a receive address so as soon as the bitcoin is bought it goes directly to your own self-custody speaking of which if you need a little help with that if you're not super confident about your self-custody or your security setup the same guys operate bitcoinsupport.com, where they have a variety of choices and packages available to choose from to help make sure that you get your Bitcoin self custody arrangement set up securely, but also in a manner that you're going to be comfortable interacting with. Whether you choose to get some help with it or you choose to go to loan, the Cold Card Bitcoin Hardware Wallet by CoinKite is an excellent and trusted tool to have in your Bitcoin self custody toolkit. This is the primary choice for the guys at bitcoinsupport.com. It's a primary choice for a lot of experienced Bitcoiners. They have an excellent brand and name and track record in the space. And they recently dropped the MK4 version of the Coldcard hardware wallet. With this version, you have a USB-C connector. You have NFC tap for all data types, PSBT address, et cetera. You have a dual secure element. You have a USB virtual disc mode and lots of other fun stuff and features that of course, we've all come to expect from the team at Coldcard and CoinKite. Visit CoinKite.com to learn more, and of course, check out all the other awesome products they have for helping you engage with your Bitcoin more securely, and also having a bit of fun while you're at it. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy the show.
1: Let's do
2: it. Is us my uh, $6 Panasonic headset coming
0: through okay? Yeah, you are. We're <laughs> live. Okay. so clear. F-Y. Nice and
3: loud. You're Lots.
4: the
0: only one that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're live, boys, with the uh, the Mandibles Bitcoin or Book Club. Whoop whoop
3: whoop. whoop. This so a long time coming, it feels like.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't realize until a couple of days ago that the book came out in in 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard like people make some noise about it. I think a year or two ago. And I'm mm-hmm. I have a pretty strong aversion to fiction, so I just didn't go down the rabbit hole. But everyone kept talking it up over the last few weeks, and Odell, you were pretty uh enthusiastic about it. So <laughs> I gave it a read. And uh, you know, obviously I can see why it resonates with the current times we're in and especially Bitcoiners. So I mean, how do you want to get this kicked off? Does everyone want to do like a really brief, like this is who it is? basically I am.
1: written for us.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I would say that like we should give the author a little bit uh like the only the only issue with this book to me is uh, the lack of Bitcoin and she had like a single sentence. She was like, Oh, remember that Bitcoin thing? Like it didn't work out. But 2016, you know, you're right in 2016 to think like that Bitcoin, I mean, we didn't think better. Bitcoin was yeah. going to fail, but yeah, it
3: was a question question mark at the time. Somebody brought up a good point on, on Twitter the other day, they were saying that uh, um, somebody had said, Oh, this, this bear market is the first bear market where uh, people have no, there's no question that Bitcoin is going to continue being around, but somebody else said, well, you know, all the Bitcoiners that stuck around through the the bear market, like everybody, nobody had any question whether it was going to stick around and survive and continue like the sentiment in a fair number of people was, okay, well, we're just in a bear market. But after the 2013 pop, which would have been in the midst of writing this book, it, there was still a question around is it coming back for a lot of people? Um, so, yeah, you're right. Like, you can't really fault her for, you know, <laughs> this being published in 2016, probably written through 2015, saying, like, well, maybe it wasn't
2: a thing. And to her credit, um, she actually wrote a follow up sort of, a, I mean, she's written a number of economic essays since the publication of the book, but she did write. One in particular, I think, in like 2020 that was saying, "Hey, look, cryptocurrency is basically our only way out, um, and so we should be really supportive of it she doesn't I don't think she's she's gotten Bitcoin per se, but I think she's probably you know realizing that cryptocurrency is the only kind of hope we have to avoid the the outcome of the book
0: yeah, it'd be interesting if i mean if the book was written a year or two even later, how The narrative would have changed. But, like, one of the things I found interesting about the book, and one of my major takeaways was one, you know, I I listened to a few interviews that she did afterwards, and she said she wanted to write a dystopian novel, but that was like way closer in time than is often the case, right? Oftentimes it's like 50 or 100 years ahead, and she wanted to just be like a little bump ahead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can all share what our takeaways were, but one of the ones that uh, struck me the most was just. Like we read this, right, and we're like, "Wow, like that's bad," and we also seem to be on that course. Like we can easily make the the connections to things that are articulated in the book and things that are happening today. And you know, it's 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 a pretty straight line from where we are today to some of the things that happened. But you know, for many people in the world today, let, let's just use the, the states for as an example. Like that's current time. You know, what I mean, I'm not trying to do like a big social justice thing here, but. For look, you look at San Francisco and look at Philly and look at you know Chicago, look at all these places where that sequence of events, where the changing you know economic foundation has kicked people out of an ability to contend with it, and they have already gone down that road of family living together, not having any savings, inflation eroding their purchasing power, being kicked out of their homes being forced to prostitution crime etc like that's reality for a fucking gigantic portion of people today and like the we we can all we, yeah we can all tolerate it right like we have more wiggle room you know because we're in a different socioeconomic strata and so we we look at it and be like boy like we're kind of anticipating things getting that bad and hoping that we can build something in parallel that allows more people to escape but It's like, it's not set in the future for a lot of people. I guess it's the point Mm -hmm. I'm making.
3: Well, when they're, when they're talking about, I guess the, the contextualizing, like when and and what has happened in the beginning of the book, it starts in 2029, but in 2024, there had been like a mass blackout of like the entire U S grid and everything went down and it caused all these massive issues um with with their infrastructure and all that and so they were still kind of reeling from that and then you get dumped into this you know the the supposed recovery from that before all of this economic shit hits with with the uh the bangor replacing the dollar and all that so it's yeah it's um it it feels very reminiscent of of the 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 rumblings that we'll hear oh you know the <laughs> the 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 preps that we see for oh there's gonna be uh you know on online infrastructure attacks you know things like that. cyber pandemic yeah cyber pandemic that's mm-hmm. the word i was looking for right like it, it seems very similar to that kind of narrative playing out in this book and and uh, yeah, I don't know. Do, do we think that's that's on the docket? Do you think if, if that were to happen, we see a similar outcome to this book?
1: The way I look at it with this book is, first of all, I mean, she, she was insanely prescient in terms of writing it in 2016. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would disagree with her takes in 2016 that wouldn't necessarily disagree with it today but I look at it from like two points of view. Well, first of all, I thought it was interesting, John, that you said that you don't like fiction. Um, I base all of my life decisions on the lessons I've learned in science fiction novels. So um, I guess we're <laughs> different sides different of the coin there. Um, but the way I look at this book is it's two sides It's first um, people should assume that this is the trajectory you're going into and they should take personal, Um, They should make personal decisions today to try and prepare themselves to be better suited for that situation. But then also as a greater Bitcoin community and people that are, you know, really tuned in on this kind of issue and these kind of concerns, um, try and make it so that she is wrong. Right. So it's it's twofold is protecting yourself, but also, you know, maybe this doesn't have to be the trajectory that we're going in. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's a go ahead, guy.
4: Oh, I was just gonna say, one thing that kind of stood out to me, and it's been almost a year since I listened to the book. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll need like kind of a little refresher if y'all end up talking about some specific thing, if anybody can drop context for a for a reminder. But um, what I remember being like kind of shocked about, and of course, this was during the height of lockdowns and stuff, was how not unbelievable most of the things that were happening was like how how many things were relatable how many things were you know discussions like 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 towards the beginning there were like you you know it was constant news reports about the the bond markets and interest rates and stuff and like we're kind of seeing so many of of exactly those sorts of things like like we're watching interest rates spike right now um and then basically have to uh respond to this and uh there were there were like little comments about like uh the the uh, d- uh the dollar is only like 40 percent of the world reserve now um mm-hmm. etc like like you're just seeing like these little like pieces of the puzzle and and i, and I loved i remembered specifically just because it wore me so bad was the opening uh to the economist um <laughs> and Hello. i wanted to i wanted to scream at that guy like during his like like monologue towards the beginning there of just like gold is outdated and everybody's so stupid it's all about confidence and it's so funny because like I have these conversations you know like this (laughs) is like this is exactly what they think um and of course you know as things get absolutely horrible and we're 90 percent down from where we are they still believe the same thing it's like oh it's just because everybody lost confidence and you know um it's all it's all just a game of appearance uh but um it was just it was it was surprising to me how many things we're lining up with 2020 and we were rationing toilet paper and they're talking about rationing paper towels. You know, one, one roll has to last so many weeks or whatever it was. Hmm. Um, and it was just like, shit, man, good God. It's, it's amazing how fast this could move in that direction.
3: Can, can we talk about the one quote from the, so the economist's uncle, I think uh, Lowell. 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 Yeah. Um, he so he talks about the like volatility of, he he, <laughs> he refers to gold and he says, he's like, oh, you know, gold, always ping-ponging all over the place, uh, which is such a hilarious, you know, comparison to like the Weimar price of gold as it's going through hyperinflation, like saying it's basically, oh, it's so unreliable, it's all over the place, how do you price it? Um, and then he's talking about He's talking about like the hedge funds overseas that are like getting rid of their dollar position and moving into gold. And, you know, you have like, th- there's, it- it's obvious that Schreiber was, uh, you know, recognized the, the value of of sound money, but they, they, she talks about gold, how a lot of people refer to Bitcoin nowadays. And they talk about, oh, gold uh, in the, book, it had uh, almost no intrinsic, like there's no actual use cases for it because it had been replaced by other things. It wasn't used in electronics anymore. Um, And so they looked at that as like a bad thing. The economist was like, well, it has no other use cases. So it's even worse now when, you know, Bitcoiners say, you know, having other use cases outside of a use case of money kind of it it distorts the signal of that monetary premium. So,
0: yeah. You, you know what's interesting about this book and and her treatment of the characters, which I think she did really well, is like like Guy was saying, like we interact with those economists, those Lowell types, like all the fucking time on Twitter, and I'm sure all of us on like in this discussion identify with willing right we're like yeah that motherfucker like he's not credentialed or whatever but he's like he's paying attention and he knows and he's studious and like he's rational and i'm sure we we're he's all straight
1: like, up a big right yeah. but
0: but imagine reading that book not being one of us like if you were a normie quote unquote like would you have identified the rational position with the economist guy and been like nodding your head when he was like straighting willing out and like putting him in his place you know that that's we all just like we probably all read that book through the lens or the perspective of willing right and when shit hits a fan and he's looking to go to nevada we're like yeah fuck dude go to the free state like you know start over and all that yeah. shit but like how would someone who doesn't have our understanding or who has a different perspective on how things are unfolding have read that book like how I would it you, have i can
3: tell them? you right now because there's a vox article <laughs> reviewing it in 2016 and the title That's is awesome lionel shriver's the mandibles is the smuggest dystopian novel this side of <laughs> *Anne rand
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's how you would read it as a normie
0: right right but i mean that's what makes it interesting too like the, how it makes you feel like for me i think matt said that i don't know if we were on uh live yet or not but like it made me feel kind of down inside like at, at least at a certain part because like it made it real enough to have it be believable. And then, you know, I really wonder how well this book or like what the sales were like pre and post pandemic. Cause like even that toilet paper remark, like when shit first popped off in March or April of 2020, I don't know what the case was where you guys were, but in Canada, like there was a scramble for toilet paper and there was a shortage. Now it was entirely because people were just retarded and they were like they heard about a toilet paper shortage, so they it became a self fulfilling prophecy and they they went ham on toilet paper and you know for a few days there there was none. But like the events of the last two years have made like this book so much more uh, like salient, I guess. And you know one of the things that I would like to do with it, you know, is hand it off to people that I've been trying to make this case for, you know, for Bitcoin and for what may unfold if we don't, if we're not proactive with with things, uh, hand it off to them and see how, what it conjures up in them. Like, does it conjure up any more, does it make it more real to them? And does it make them more receptive to maybe be more proactive in mitigating the damages that might be on the horizon?
2: To go back to the idea of willing as a, as a Bitcoiner, um... I might actually, just for the sake of argument, I might disagree with that Uh, because willing throughout the book. Okay. So, you know, maybe, maybe we should kind of walk through the structure of the family just to set the context for, for who is what, because I think one of the, one of the huge values of the book is that the mandibles as a family kind of encompasses the whole socioeconomic strata. I mean, there's nobody who's like destitute in there, but uh douglas the grandfather is kind of an older sort of based um he's sort of the patriarch of the family and he's uh ninety seven years old and has you know um before the before the crisis basically had i think he had some commodities some gold some stocks like he he was pretty diversified um but because it was all on paper he winds up essentially destitute once um, inflation gets going because there are bail-ins, the government confiscates everything. So he's he's kind of the patriarch. His son, Carter Mandible um, is, I think, was married to Florence and Florence he was is- to, uh, He was married Jane. to um, me. Oh, to Jane, okay. And, and, and then Luella Jane. was the, repl- the replacement. <laughs> right, right, yeah. okay. Um, Florence's family is interesting because they're kind of like the closest to working class here. Um, she's married to a guy named Esteban who's I think like a laborer. Um, and that's that's where Willing fits in. Willing is the son of Florence. And uh, Willing's a very interesting character. He's, he's basically the protagonist. And what's interesting about Willing is that he's almost per- perfectly adapted for this situation where paper wealth completely disappears, there are huge physical shortages, and the family basically has to start ruthlessly stripping back their consumption, farming food, you know, at some point willing takes up the gun, Um, so willing as a Bitcoiner is kind of an interesting proposition because what was so impactful for me reading this book is this idea that in a true inflationary collapse, like there might be this intervening period of time where nothing is worth anything unless it's sort of an immediately consumable physical commodity or a tool or, you know, a skill set like plumbing or, you know, electrical work and willing to me kind of typifies this primitive character that is capable of all those things, is capable of relaxing his morality to, to hold somebody up or kill somebody to, to sort of survive. Um, I think if you were going to pick a Bitcoiner, I would almost pick Noli, who's the, the sister from Paris, who's uh, the writer. I don't want to necessarily spoil the book, but you know, she, uh, she sort of saves the family um, in, in a way that you know, I think many Bitcoiners could relate to.
0: That's a good point. And she was very under the radar until the time was right to, you know, show her hand, basically.
2: Right. right. I mean, I just I want thought-
0: to say to
1: anyone who's listening, uh, I think there's going to be many spoilers. So if you haven't read the book, <laughs> yeah. stop listening now, yeah. go read the book and then come it's back.
4: It's hard to talk about it with when the best things are all spoilers.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I well, think Douglas could you could make a case that I mean he was kind of Bitcoiner esque as well. I mean he was one the most well positioned, and then he was also so accepting of the circumstances, and he al- you know he was always calm amidst them. And then of course his final act was pretty fucking intense slash badass, you know, and and very selfless. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, there are totally. a bunch of Peter Schiffs that uh, that were
2: right in an instance where Bitcoin didn't work out, right? Like that. I, I think that's right, Sessions. I, I think he's the perfect example. He's like a sort of optimistic Peter Schiff where he yeah. kind of understood the fundamentals of everything and he kind of got at everything and he tried to position himself, but he just didn't do it the right way mm-hmm. and got completely
0: wiped out. Yeah. How did the book make you guys like feel? You know, I said it there were times where I think in the mid or yeah in the middle i was it was the middle was depressing,
1: depressing as fuck right. like she <laughs> saved the book by doing something that's very i probably controversial in in author land which is she jumped ahead uh 15 years or so at the end um but to me it was like the book is mainly the beginning and the end the middle part is just like almost rubbing it in that they just weren't prepared for that situation at all it was just yeah. a a bunch of chapters of just rubbing it in like how bad it can really get if you're not prepared
3: or not thinking about these things yeah well there are so many awful awful th- like they literally get house jacked their neighbors like come over and they're like all right get the fuck out we've got a gun and you don't um that was you know and that was again they they talk about they refer to guns in the second amendment a couple times throughout this um you know and the parents don't want a weapon in the house and willing is, is understands that it's now time to make sure you can protect yourself. But, uh, in the end they get, they get screwed because the neighbors come over and basically just add gun points. They get the hell out of your own house. But then later on in the, in the book, like during that leap forward, they refer to a lot of things that have happened in the past. And one of them is that, uh, experts have gone and reinterpreted the second amendment uh and they they interpret a well uh a well-armed militia or something like that as what's meant to uh, they meant to be armies and police forces not individuals uh and so they basically revoke or again reinterpret the second amendment so that nobody can defend themselves anymore
2: but yeah Yeah. i think the I'm sorry, John. No, you, I,
0: no, go ahead.
2: Go ahead. Okay. I, I think the middle part of that book, where it's just the grind of circumstances getting worse and worse and worse so steadily, is like the most important aspect of the book because, you know, we spend a lot of time in this world of like, you know, uh, ungrounded abstractions like dysfunctional treasury markets and CPI. And it's th- this book is really, really important to me because it's kind of a visceral reminder of what an inflationary collapse actually looks like and how that's that's a much less orderly process than than we think about it being.
1: Right. The grind is not glamorous. And I mean, one thing I learned in 2020 was, I mean, Bitcoiners, there's, 2020 was super weird for us, right? Because Bitcoiners were kind of on the leading edge in terms of being worried about COVID. Um, we were like stocking up on supplies and stuff. And then we flipped- before everyone else in terms of yeah. of saying that people are being ridiculous and you got to live your lives um that there's too much gov- government overreach but besides all of that one of the things i took away from 2020 is you know and and this is also what people learn when they trade shit coins right is that when you're down like 85 percent you can easily go down another 85 percent slowly right yeah. so you get to this point where you're you're like we already fucked up we weren't prepared like there's no solving the situation but really if 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 you put your pedal to the metal and you start thinking about it and trying to be pragmatic you can avoid the further the further losses the further tragedy if you if you don't just like settle in right and they ended up in this book they settled in right there was a lot of there was a lot of trauma and tragedy that happened there if they if, if instead of settling in they decided to leave new york city earlier and go to Ironically enough, uh, their relatives' ranch that was called the Citadel.
2: That's right, Jared, the the brother of uh, Carter Mandible, I think, had a. He's a really plot. the big runner.
0: maybe he's the big winner. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that yeah. could be.
0: He's already there.
3: <laughs> I, want, I, do- I want an episode of Citadel Hunter uh, at Jared's <laughs> ranch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a. That was so good. I think mm-hmm. it's a good point though about how the book. Um, like displays the grinding, like the slow grind of winding up in a different situation. And I've, you know, I've seen that in in family and friends' lives over the course of the last two years. And unsurprisingly, like Shriver has said, had, had I, because so many things that she, like, you know, the chipping and the tracking and all that stuff in that book, I mean, the last two years, a lot of that stuff has become real in like, in a very similar way. And, and, and the money printing and the inflation. And of course, in hindsight, she said, like, if I knew what was going to happen in in the intervening, you know, 2020, from, from 2020 to 2022, I would have pushed the timeline forward. But she was obviously very prescient in like being able to anticipate what would happen here. But one of the things that the reason why it was depressing for me is because it kind of showed how this slow, like you always think the big scary life events are going to be easily demarcated like oh I, I just need to keep my eye out for this and I'll be fine but really it's just a slow grind where every day you just like you give a little you accept a little you don't push back you don't speak up you just keep going you think it's going to revert to the mean you think it's going to go back to normal and then five ten years down the road you, you've just been grinded down so much that you don't even you didn't even realize when you gave up you no. just completely submitted and you wind up in a place where like, once you've, once you wake up and you realize that, well, then desperate behavior is the only thing left available to you, whether it's prostitution, you know, uh, armed robbery, living on the street, whatever, like, it's just that slow, like grinding of your soul down until you're no, no longer really able financially or energetically, spiritually, whatever to, to, uh, get out of that situation. And that's, that was very evident in the, in like, in the storyline to me. And I I think that's true. Like, I think that's very real. And I've, if you, even if you just look at the last two years, you know, so many people maybe X outside of Bitcoin, you know, there's that rationalizing, there's that, you know, it'll go back or no, it's actually good. And all of this kind of stuff. And I think if you zoom out, you see that that's like the process of of being ground down until you wake up one day and you, you you don't have the capacity to build yourself back up. And I also think that's why this book is kind of, you know, there's a lot to be made. I think Elon like tweeted out that left, right, me sort of meme the other day where like the the left has, he like a lot of us haven't moved, but the left has gone that way, or at least that was his assertion. And I think that, you know, this book is kind of emblematic of that where like the circumstances changed so much that like people became more quote unquote extreme or more, more anarchy oriented or more freedom or libertarian oriented just by virtue of the dramatically changing circumstance. And I think again, like in terms of how this book might open people's eyes to a potential future, I think it, it might, uh, it might help them see like how their perspective on politics or. That left right divide might change based on the changing circumstance, you know how how one side might become more extreme. The,
3: the other aspect to it was the the will for the willful ignorance or apathy towards even understanding what was going on, like at the very beginning of the book, they they it's already really dire like the Florence girl and and willing that they're living basically in hovels right They're they're in a terrible situation already and willing's watching he's asking these questions like what's a reserve currency as he's watching the news and his mom is like I used to pay attention to that kind of stuff and I just I don't I don't know I don't care anymore I've whatever like they've already gone through so much and they've refuse to even attempt to understand this, this mechanism that, that basically helps them value their their time and their lives and, and how it's being perverted and kind of stealing the fruits of their labor right out from under them. And, and then you also get this, this stubbornness of, of Lowell, right? Again, just uh, like refusing to believe in, in, in spite of everything happening around him that he could have possibly been wrong about uh, about how the world works and and it's those those were very i don't know they, they were very in your face um when you have somebody like willing that's that's curious and trying to learn the entire time and trying to actually figure out what's going on versus um the stubbornness of his uncle and the apathy of his mother
1: I mean, that's an aspect that really hit me kind of hard because I see it in the Bitcoin community, which is this, this situation where we get hounded by all this bullshit all the time. Um, and then you have critical thinkers, then rather than try and like sit down with the information and try and get information for as many sources as possible and deduct what's going on, it just, you just turn off. You just say, you know, all this, all the, all the news is fake news. This is all bullshit. You know, everything's a PSYOP. I'm not going to pay attention. Um, And you can end up in this, in this type of situation. In what
0: type of situation?
1: In what type of situation?
0: Yeah. In the type of situation
1: where you're blindsided by something that you not, you, you don't necessarily need to be blindsided from. Because you've right there's so much because there's like a willful ignorance, right? And and in small doses, it's healthy. Like you shouldn't be constantly tuned in twenty four seven to all this signal and all this noise. Um, but at some point, you know, you have to take some kind of personal responsibility and figure out what situation you're in. What is the real situation? How to best handle that situation? Um, and I, I not only do I see that in the Bitcoin community, I see that all throughout my my peer groups, even like in normie circles or whatever, where they're just like, it's all bullshit. Like I just don't even pay attention to it. Um, and if if you're in that situation, you're you're basically just flying blind is is what the result is, and you're operating under this assumption that if you do the right things or you do. You know, good things, then the rest is just noise and doesn't matter to you. But ultimately we live in a society that's extremely interconnected and what other people do will, will directly affect you.
4: You know, I think a big part of that is that it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And, and I feel like people develop that apathy because you feel like you have absolutely no control over the situation. You're having to watch and listen to what other people do because they're literally in charge of your livelihood. Um, And it becomes such a massive apparatus. And you see this kind of, you see this in the, the breakdowns and explanations and personal accounts of other hyperinflationary events all over the place is that people, a, people get apathetic, but then as things get worse and worse, you have less and less time to give a shit about what other people are saying or what other people are doing because your whole life becomes your focus. It's like the ultimate short-term time preference or a high, high time preference. And everything is just living day to day and getting the next roll of paper towels and making sure you have clean water um, and the the idea that you now have to that your life is now 10 times harder and you have 10 times more shit that you have to listen to and worry about in boardrooms and fed reserve meetings and shit like like can you like think about how powerless that makes somebody feel like it's kind of like a degree of like I'm going to have some control over my life if I just focus on the paper towels um and uh and, and odell something that you brought up earlier is this happened there were so many stages of this when, you know, gold is ping ponging um, in the the Weimar Republic, is that it would fall 85%, 90%. You'd have this horrible like 10x sort of collapse. And then this moment where things are slowing down and everybody would be like, Oh, God, that was horrible. I can't believe how bad it got, like it was over. And then you do twice that. Just after like people would rest thinking that that was it. And now we're trying to figure out how to get back to normal, how to reverse this. And it had just started like over and over and over again, until like you got to a point where it was so absurd, that the ability to react to it was just gone. The, the ability to repair was just so, so left you so many times ago, like that first respite was not the end of it. It was your chance to buy an extra roll of paper towels because you're going to be fucked in like a couple of months and how quickly these situations get out of hand and they compound on each other because people aren't responding. People don't have the time to figure this shit out and everything like it is a feedback loop, right? It is, a, it is a negative feedback loop in every way. Your ability to pay attention to it, your ability to take command and control of your own life, the apathy that, uh, that leads, that, that develops as a response to it. Um, the I just don't give a fuck about anything. The society is just falling apart and everybody's full of shit. I'm just going to deal with my own stuff. It is the de-civilization of society. Um, mm-hmm. like when money falls apart, it all falls apart, um, internally, externally, the whole fucking thing. Um, and it's just crazy. Like th- this book did such a, I mean, as awful as it was during the middle, um, I mean, it's, it's not like, it's not like it's not a true story in, in the sense of the reality of what happens in those situations.
2: So one of the most interesting and, uh, macabre parts of the book, uh, involve- Lowell and Avery so just to recap Lowell is a a college professor he's like sort of a classic Keynesian um, and his wife Avery is like a some kind of a high-level woo -woo therapist and um, there's this really great scene where they have a dinner party and they invite various people over Um, one of the one of the couples is like a sort of modern monetary theory type um, ideology and uh, and then there's, I think, some guy from the Treasury, or or some guy who's like a federal marshal or something like that, who's kind of, sort of like a classic conservative. Um, but this couple, I think, is particularly interesting because they're sort of like the affluent uh, older millennial couple. You know, they they have good jobs, their kids go to private schools, and so forth. And you just see them completely disintegrate because. In the course of this high, of this inflationary collapse, their skill sets are like mark to market in an interesting way. And in that because of the fiat situation, you know, they've been able to sort of make a really great living up until that point, doing these basically meaningless tasks. And when circumstances get dire. They don't have any kind of a real skill set to fall back on, and so they end up going very quickly to poverty as they can't, you know, meet their financial obligations and um, can't make make any money because, like, there's just no demand for for garbage once once the uh, um, you know the debt's flushed out of the system. And so, so for me, I mean, like, I, it, it's an interesting challenge to me because as Bitcoiners, I think we're kind of smug. We're like. Oh yeah, we own Bitcoin. You know, we're going to be fine, whatever happens. But um, all throughout reading this book, I think it was it was a really frightening read for me because it it became clear to me that that's not necessarily the case, and that there may be a period where there's significant physical scarcity, and what really matters is is your ability to productively generate, you know, kind of physical activity, Um, and that's not just owning Bitcoin. Maybe that's you know having some kind of a practical trade or, or skill under your belt. And so to be honest, reading this scared the shit out of me. And it made me really want to like, like, look, no one's going to care on a hyperinflationary collapse. If I can secure secure your computer network or, or, or audit your, your, your wallet. I mean, those, those considerations are so high level. It made me want to go, you know, learn carpentry, you know, do some more of that or, or, or like learn how to work on a, a breaker box or something, because, um, when things get dire i just think there's going to be a period of time where where the high level stuff goes out the window
4: electrical mechanic carpentry like all all that stuff basic basic handyman shit like just the ability like so many people band-aid over problems by just replacing things very quickly you know like if something breaks they don't know how to fix it they they literally just go buy the replacement and throw it away they throw away like 90 percent of a working product because you know just a couple of percent here on the edge broke um and if you can you know get the component or whatever and fix the thing uh that's insanely valuable in a world that's falling apart when there's no supply chains and the ability to go buy the product just doesn't exist anymore um but yeah
1: i mean i want to unpack this a little bit because like obviously, as a bitcoiner, there's a glaring hole in this novel, which is that Bitcoin failed in like 2016 or 2018 or something uh, right before shit hit the fan. Um, and basically I, I I'm curious on your guys' opinions on like does Bitcoin prevent this situation does Bitcoin fix this as as so many people like to say, uh, both on like a societal level but also on like an individual you you hold bitcoin your 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 bitcoin holder.
3: Well, why don't we go through a laundry list of the shit that went wrong and then <laughs> does Bitcoin fixes? Like the, I, so, or I guess uh, the government's reaction and, and kind of what, what they've done here.
1: At the surface level, I mean, the number one lesson that I would like most Bitcoiners to take away from this is the second shit hit the fan, they were going door to door, seizing everybody's gold. Yes. So, are most Bitcoiners prepared for that situation?
3: I would say no. Yeah. The other thing, and this is, uh, they, they basically again, they, they seize all the gold, but then they make any uh, large um, local or not local, but uh, any any mining any miners gold miners in the U.S. can only sell to the Treasury, and so does at home. Bitcoin mining or discrete Bitcoin mining on an individual basis, fix that. Maybe.
0: Yeah. I think James point was also very good, but also why so many Bitcoiners seem to be interested in regenerative agriculture, having a farm in the mountains, like ranching, that kind of thing, because I think they recognize that sure, you can have your stack and the best money, you know, ever. And that may, I mean, better to have it than not. Right. But it may indeed be the case that you just money can't buy what you need, no matter what kind of money you have. And so being self-sufficient, it, like reducing your dependencies to the extent possible is probably, you know, a very wise move if, if we're heading into this type of environment and Matt, to answer your question. I mean, I oscillate back and forth on this one, um, you know, whether like it can be avoided entirely, or I, I think I lean more towards something that happened in the book happening in real life where there's a bifurcation uh, and you know people go to the states or nations or jurisdictions where there's more freedom less overbearing you know government control and that's like these little pockets of oasis where you know where you can if you have the means you can go and you can live more freely now then the question becomes like what's the standoff between you know the the authoritarian jurisdictions and the ones that are more free and, you know, what happens there, who knows. But, um, but I think, you know, I I think that's probably where it's going to go in the, in the short to medium term. And then, you know, hopefully in the longer term, we switch systems and people can, more people can be uh, saved from this circumstance. But I think, you know, I think she was very prescient in adding that to the end of the book. And again, spoiler, but, you know, Nevada becomes (laughs) a free state and it's not so great. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of eking out a survival. Uh, and I, c- I can't remember how long it had been free for when when the boys, uh, like when Willing and... What uh, was it, 2042
1: arrived. they said they declared their freedom?
0: Right. And it was, was it 2049 when the book is It was when they got there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been on the go for seven years. Um, so fair enough. It wasn't like rocking it quite yet. But I feel like something like that is probably what's what's in the cards.
1: I mean, to me, what's crazy is just like how many checkboxes she covered in terms of like my way of thinking when she wrote this book. Like, I literally feel like she wrote the book for me and confirms most of my biases. I mean, she talks about surveillance. Um, They have a chip talking about seizing gold, banning cash, seizing farms. Farms got nationalized, right? They have they have a basically a prepper, a prepper uncle who has a place called a Citadel that, that he's like, we need to control our own food. Um, she was like, even on the, when they're going to Nevada, they, they like stop at basically like a rich preppers uh, bunker. Like one of those really awesome bunkers that they sell is what my, in my head is how I thought about it, where it's like seven different levels and like an old missile silo and like they're all dead and had a horrible life which to me is is kind of redeeming from the Bitcoiner side because a lot of times when I talk to people about these things, they're like, you're a crazy prepper person. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to be more pragmatic than that. Then I'm not going to just like seal myself in my missile bunker um, and expect to, to go out of it. But on one positive note, um, and I think we saw this in 2020, specifically as an American, is that international travel, Became an issue that got closed down really quickly. They're talking about later in the book, like which countries can they go to? No one wants to accept Americans. Like there's illegal immigration into Mexico, even. It's like a big wall that Mexico put yeah. up. That, yeah, Mexico did pay for it. <laughs> but they could still drive coast to coast and mm-hmm. switch jurisdictions internally within the United States, right? Which was a very powerful thing that I think Americans realized with our system in 2020, which is that we can easily.
2: Do jurisdictional arbitrage within our federal boundaries. Well, one of the worries about that is that the problem, you know, is federal at this point, and there's there's so much. Um, one of the one of the smartest aspects of the book, I thought, is her emphasis. Like in the future, um, the healthcare sector is essentially like this like UBI jobs program, where you know if if, if you can't afford anything, you go work as a nurse or something. And you know, I, like if you listen to Luke Grohman, he talks a lot about this, like the fact that we can't print healthcare workers, um, and in reality, a lot of the the sort of unfunded liabilities in, in America at the federal level are for healthcare. Um, and so, you know, I wonder, like, yeah, yeah, I love that we can switch jurisdictions to a certain extent and express express preferences, you know, for say New Hampshire or Texas over Maryland, but um, but I wonder at one point that. You know that's kind of a, a minor point, and the federal situation comes home to roost.
0: Well, I think that's probably what creates those jurisdictions that break off or try to sequester themselves to in some capacity. You know, like and maybe we're seeing the very beginnings of that in places like Texas and Florida and, and New Hampshire. I was and about stuff. saying in, in yeah. the in the book,
3: they talk about people trying to get into Nevada. Um, they're talking about their chips that they have, and there's there's all this like rumor mill probably started by the government itself about like if you cross the border it'll track you and then it's basically self-destruct the kind of your head yeah like that that kind of but again like just everything that they can to prevent people from from using that jurisdictional arbitrage at that point and there's there's so many Again, things that Bitcoiners are like, oh, yeah, that's that's a possibility down the line, to Matt's point, all of the things like there's so much so many check boxes. like, international currencies are illegal. Um, the birth rate plummets because nobody can think long term and they don't want to have that extra expense. Um, they talk about uh, people on strike because they're only taking home 23% of their earnings and and the the strikers are seen as unpatriotic and then they're talking about uh his um uh Goog is the one son but his father uh is it lowell is that his father yeah lowell is his father but <laughs> there's oh he's going to be sitting pretty he's he bought some stuff uh during the crash and now now he'll be able to sit on that and willing is like really? He's going to be okay? Because 85% capital gains. <laughs> so they start mm-hmm. going through all of this. They they talk about um, how they there's people that just to, the ways of escape, like bread and circuses kind of thing, like Walgreens, you can just go and buy heroin. <laughs> they were out of Coke. So this guy buys heroin when they come to a dinner party. Uh, and then there's the people, the slumberers, the people that literally just like Hook themselves up to a drum of industrial sludge food and like some narcotics to like put them out so they can just like sleep through their lives because they don't want reality. They save enough money for this drum of sludge to keep them alive and just go to sleep and just live as long as they can
0: without having to interact with society. Like it it gets that's that's super dark, but I mean, just think. That, I mean, I suspect something like that will inevitably be available. And I think it will probably be fairly popular. No. You know, like, you know, what if you're like, hey, yeah. I sorted out my investments and whatever else is going on in my life, I'd like to just drift through the next five years and let things happen and wake up in a better situation. I mean, how many people do you think would take that deal? I think a lot. Well, a scary.
1: huge amount of people are going to do that. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe- Slightly unrealistic. Is this yet. the metaverse? Slumber might be a little bit, it's like kind of a basic premise of it, yeah. but I actually think like a lot of people will just like plug into like a VR reality. Um, specifically if they can figure out how to make sex uh, feel like sex, um, well, people are just going to like live question, out their lives
0: completely plugged into the pod. The real interesting question is, are they wrong to do that? Is it irrational to do that? Let's say that your physical environment and your life is just destitute deprivation stress anxiety all that stuff and you have something available to you that's going to deliver the experience of greater abundance and greater happiness and greater all that like is it irrational for you to plug yourself into the matrix i mean this is the big metaphorical thing about cypher in the actual movie the matrix right yeah. well
3: and they 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 talk about these slumbers as as being like leeches on society and you know they some I don't, you know, the, the guy who Goog, who ends up basically working for the government and, and uh, you know, loves the taste of boot, just, just, he's talking about them as, as, Oh, the, I don't know how they managed to save up some, but they, they, you know, as if it's a terrible thing that somebody managed to save up enough to escape the awful reality that is life in the U S at that point. And, uh, and, and, they they talk about them being a drain on society but like if you think of the implications longer term of enough people doing that you know society like in order to get the electricity going to their house there's got to be somebody living in the real world that's actually doing real work to keep the electrical grid going eventually it just folds in on itself if enough people go that route and so is that assertion that they're they're kind of siphoning value from everybody else i I suppose at that point because like there's there's
0: nothing left people have got to keep work to keep them asleep at that point until until their body heat is used as the environmentally friendly method of powering fucking everything (laughs) but but i mean i kind of want to i kind of want to stay here for a second because like what is the rationale for not taking the easy road, basically the, the, the more enticing experience. Like, what do you guys think is the rationale for staying in the real world?
1: Well, I mean, it's not, I would push back a little bit in that, at least in this book, it's not a welfare mechanism. Like they're paying for it. They even say like they won't get woken up until their prepayments end. Um, And ultimately, uh, even though I disagree with necessarily doing that personally, I think people should be able to do whatever the fuck they want to do. Um, but why do you disagree
0: with it is what I want to know.
1: I, I think ultimately is it's, it's a free will and control thing. Um, and I, I think that pretty much, however you, um, however you cut that, however you cut those slices in this case, it's a very simple thing. So it's slumber. So they're sleeping and they're dreaming and it's just natural dreaming. Um, when I think about where we go here, is I think like proprietary walled gardens, you know, virtual reality pods where like people are paying credits to corporations and the corporations are spying on all their thoughts and, you know, recording their their memories and their dreams and everything that they're doing. Um, so it's like purely a slavery thing. Like you're, you're, just, you're just this cattle that is in this pod that is paying them credits, which I expect to be sats. Um, and that's just no way for a free man to live.
2: Well, and John, I think, you know, to answer your question, for me personally, production ends up being a lot more fun than consumption ultimately. And I think long-term living a good life is, is doing things in the real world and and producing things. And, you know, uh, you can't do that. Um, if you're spending all your day playing Xbox in your parents' basement, you know, eating Taco Bell. And that's, that's the I mean, they, like that's, that's the equivalent I see as as this this going to sleep thing, which I think we already have today. And if you look at family formation rates, um, you know, there's pretty indi- good indication that's that's widespread.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think I of- think that's a that's a good point. And yeah, I think you said like work is fun, but I, I like I that's I accept that. But I think meaningfulness is also one of the aspects that you get from work that you don't necessarily get from. Consumption, But I, it, it does bring about an interesting question, like if we arrive in a future where, because like when you're down in the basement with Taco Bell and video games, like you're just getting dopamine and whatever other, you know, chemicals from all angles to make you feel good, right? You know, the food and the, the game and the comfort of the couch and air conditioned room and whatever. And when that can be so uh, specifically like titrated or, or delivered in like such precise amounts to deliver such precise experience, I mean, I think that question becomes even more like, well, why shouldn't I take the optimized experience, you know, that can deliver it to me? And I think maybe this is why the development of technology might elicit greater consideration of the ineffable or spiritual realms of existence, because it brings you to the door to say like, okay, we well, can give me every, all the physiological pleasures that are available to me, but what can't you deliver to me? And why should I, you know, why should I want the thing you can't deliver to me? And I, I think that's like a spiritual or theological discussion. Some There's, There's something, something there, meaning. like, it's the artificiality of it, I think. Like, yeah. it's, it's, you
3: know, why, why do we all want girlfriends instead of just subscribing to OnlyFans, right? Like, it's like, it's sure you're being fed exactly what you ask for, but is it, it's not, you know, it's not real right you that's know a, that's a tricky
0: line though where's the yeah. line between artificial and real
3: well and that's and that's the red pill blue pill in the matrix right like sure we you know do you want the wool pulled over your eyes and you'll just lead this happy existence and and some people can do that some people can subscribe to the only fans and there's my girlfriend and then I- other people want to go out and get on a date and interact and get genuine interaction and, and they can't they, they can't settle for the facade of everything being catered to what they want. They, they need it to be, um, they need it to be real. They, they need the experience of the ups and the downs with everything instead of just this kind of bland, here you go. This is exactly as expected. The truth. Well, it's like, a, it's like a drug addiction. Like, I mean, it, it really is. Yep. It's, it's all of the fake,
4: um, uh, you know endorphin response without any of the reason for it to be there um it's antidepressants it's it's drug addiction it's spending your life behind a video game or in a movie theater like the purpose it's funny like odell and john they were talking earlier about um uh not liking fiction versus liking fiction um i am a huge huge fiction fan i mean i i probably predominantly do nonfiction, but I genuinely, I genuinely think narrative is a better teacher than explanation. Um, And, uh, and I think, I think you can learn more through valuable narrative and mandibles is a great example, actually, um, than than you can by being explained something or told something. But in that same context is like, what's the purpose of the fiction? It's to learn something about what it's like to be human. Yeah. It's and that's why it's unsatisfying when there's no struggle. That's why it's unsatisfying when there's no character arc to follow, when nobody has learned anything in the story, you don't give a shit because you, you can't it's you can't take anything away and, and think about your life and how things change. Like there's no meaning in it. So for the same reason, if I just live day and night like in a movie theater, just watching movies, well, I've defeated the purpose of watching movies. I've defeated mm-hmm. the purpose of the whole task. Um, and I've, I've, I've literally, I'm just, I'm just shooting up heroin so that I don't, I never have to think about when I'm having a bad day or a headache or whatever it is. I'm just always lost in this endorphin and everything is just meaningless. Um,
1: it's, it's happiness without purpose. Like good fiction has a basis in reality. And this thought process, you know, plugging yourself into a pod, going into sleep forever, uh, does not actually have a basis in reality. It's just, it's just wasted mental cycles
0: it's interesting you know like someone like peterson obviously goes to great lengths to describe how like religious narrative is hyper real because it's real across many different dimensions and scales and situations and that's why at least as far as i can tell so many of them have been narrativized throughout time and and the narratives are what's are what is what is get is carried through across time because one they can be remembered and Trans, uh, transmitted across time, but also they, they retain their salience, of like mapping on something that's extremely true and meaningful. You know, and I think one of the the answers to this question, like, well, why not stay in there all the time is what you've all basically been saying is like, well, what value or meaning do you ascribe to truth to the extent that you can discern it? And I, you know, I, I think, especially in Bitcoin, like a lot of us are like, we ascribe a lot of value and meaning on truth, like maybe that's what we're all striving for perhaps more than anything is truth in every domain truth in money and truth in you know so society family politics food fitness health whatever you know it truth seems to be the thing and if you have a, a genuine allegiance or aspire toward perceiving greater truth then jacking yourself into the matrix is basically the antithesis of that but you know and and i think this is all a spectrum right like nobody is exclusively on that end or exclusively on this but you look around the world today and at least it seems to me that most people are already in a lower tech version of this. Like James was saying about, you know, the, the playing video games and the taco bell in the basement, but like, you know, I lived in Shanghai for a while. And for a while, I was one of those miserable like office people that you wake up, you come out of your little box in a 40 story building, get on the subway with a bajillion other people for an hour <clears throat> work, get on the subway, pick up some food on the way back go up to your box, turn on Netflix, eat the food, go to bed, do it again for five days, shit-faced on the weekend, cover on Sunday, do it again. I mean, and like those people, that's mostly what they're doing. They're like, they're, they're mediating their life by getting access to these like stimulating experiences or, you know, releases, food and alcohol and, you know, TV and all that stuff. And they're trying to create An artificial world to some extent to enable them to continue living the quote unquote real world and you know so if you're in that sort of a situation and someone offers you the ability to have less on the real and more on the artificial i think an assessment of what's happening currently you you would have to kind of extrapolate and say a lot of people are going to take that deal especially if they don't have such a reverence or dedication to the more real, to the more true, and to orienting and constructing a life around it.
2: Good. Yeah.
4: Um, And, you know, there's something, this is a little bit back to um, uh, something we talked about earlier was the jurisdictional arbitrage. Like Like people who want to deal with the hard truth rather than the uncomfortable uh, the the comfortable lie um will like like everyone will subdivide and split and try to find the community that that gives them their bias right so you'll the the cities or whoever it is like where all the slumberers go um will will basically aggregate and then you'll have areas like nevada and what's funny is that like I, i i feel like we're we're seeing like the beginning steps of this. Now, like, I I feel like we're bifurcating in like a big way. Um, like, and as things get worse and worse, the, the courage and the, the, the balls to just say, just go fuck yourself is going to continue to increase. Um, like Texas just saying no to a federal law becomes more and more like likely, um as things move forward and as i mean jesus like just i mean the bitcoin community is such a great example is that like every few weeks people are just like peacing out to texas and i'm like fuck you guys like like i'm like i'm I'm here in north let's, let's do something here come on people like come come to north carolina um And, uh, but, but I think, I think we're going to see that. And like the Citadel thing is a meme, but the Citadel thing is fucking real. It is, it is legit. Like, I mean, it's obviously not going to look like some big towers with walls and all this shit, but like the idea of finding your tribe and the breakdown of the, the big tribe, like the cohesion of any sort of identity as a country, I think is dying. And we're going to have to redefine what it means to be a community and, and, uh, tackle all of these, all of these things that we've just left up to somebody else, particularly with our economy, like, you know, Nevada, the, the situation there was that everybody was just kind of struggling. I think that's kind of what the reality now should be in the sense that we are floating on this reserve currency. Like we're not actually producing what we consume, like not even close. We're we're letting other people produce it for us. We were never able to sustain this. We were never able to sustain this these salaries and this level of consumption. And the the little thing breaks on my washing machine. And I just buy a new washing machine, even though it's actually three dollars to fix the thing. You know, um, like it, it was it just wasn't sustainable. It's because we export paper. It's because we live in this illusion. We're kind of in the matrix, um, and we're gonna have to wake up to economic reality. And that's kind of what's that's kind of what we're seeing unfolding. Um, but, but yeah, I think uh, like the bifurcation, the separation of all that, I, I think we'll see a lot of States just kind of like stand up and be like, we're not playing this game anymore. And I'm hoping you know, my fingers crossed is that the federal government just has too much shit on its hands and dealing with too many things in too many different areas that they just kind of like treat it like Nevada. You know, they're just kind of like, Oh, you fucking crazy people. And like, I'll keep you at arm's length. I just got other things to deal with and then just pretend it doesn't exist,
1: you know? Do you think that that's one of the unrealistic parts of this novel is that there isn't more uh, bifurcation? There isn't more, you know, states basically splitting up? Because it's kind of weird that, like, it goes through such... I do. Like, the federal government gets absolutely destroyed, but it's still pretty strong. I mean, besides Nevada in the novel, all the other states are still under its thumb.
0: Yeah, it yeah. probably is.
4: I mean, I think I think we're kind of seeing right now, like you could probably like I could realistically point to four or five states that I think are are pushing back continually, like more and more and being willing to call out the embarrassments of the federal government and when they do not align with the state like particularly like the, the Midwest, like Central America, or whatever, there's so much rural area out there. They are going to just be like, fuck all you people. Like, I don't care about any of this shit. Like we're, we're not even, we're not even selling our beef. We're not selling our beef. We're not selling anything that we farm. Just, just get the fuck out of here, you know, <laughs> like, and they'll just play their own little game. And I think we'll be in this situation where a lot of the authority will have to pretend that these places don't exist. Um, you know, this is actually a lot of what's happening in South China, Um, There are some very, quote unquote, free, like, like just not really under the Chinese communist thumb um, societies, like parts of uh, rural China that are really kind of on their own um because they're far enough away and this is actually a lot of the source of their incredible productive capacity so they just kind of pretend like it's not a problem like it's like not a thing and there are these like pretty serious black markets and these like uh gray financial markets in in these areas in these provinces and like i, I think i think that's the trend i think that's where we're going i think that's where a lot of the world is going we're we're still looking at this overarching appearance of all of these big countries with big centers of control and they're getting bigger and they're getting more totalitarian. But I think at the exact same time, there's a lot of small places. that are hard to see that are hard to pinpoint. They're kind of breaking away from this and just starting to play their own game. And I hope that this continues and accelerates. And we just kind of see this breakdown where it just kind of becomes irrelevant. Everybody kind of pretends it's like king and queen, You know, it's like everybody still pretends they're important, but they're not really in charge anymore. You know, um, like kind of like the federal government. I I almost hope like in like a 30 year, 40 year timeline, like the church used to be just the power, the authority. And one day the church just kind of became the church. Still there, still big, still powerful, still got lots of control, still rape kids all the time. But it's not the one that runs society anymore. They're they're still kind of, they're they're they've lost their their center of power, um and I kind of think the large centralized governments are headed that way, and that's why they're getting extra desperate to clasp to to grasp onto all of the control that they possibly can. We've got to have digital IDs. I think they're freaking out that they are losing control, they're certainly losing the narrative
0: I think at, you, at least at
3: least that's what I see. I was going to ask, do you think that it, it becomes like that that gradual loss of power do they settle into being what they should be which is effectively just ensuring property rights and having a military like is that where we settle on or or do, is there continual overreach because uh, is it is it okay if I mentioned the the end of the book here yeah 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 yeah, I, I want to like, talk about it. It's one of my favorite things about the book. Well, it was the best ending. Like <laughs> they get to Nevada, they settle in and then they've jumped forward one more time to like 2067 or something. They're like in 2067, the 10% flat tax was increased to 11%, of course. <laughs> like, and so like, I, I feel like this is, while it was a hilarious ending, it kind of gives a, a, a non-lesson. In that, like, it's just like, well, everything's always fucked forever. It'll just take a, enough time to get there. And it'll just be a cycle over and over again. Um, Very forth-turning vibes. Yeah. yeah, but I do think that in that instance, in a way, like, Bitcoin has a hand in fixing that. And the, the, that hand-in-hand with jurisdictional arbitrage. And I, I think that there's something there. But, like, the, the ending, I, I had to smirk at that because it was such a perfect, like, oh yeah, we've got this, not even a utopia, but like a, a, a free part of the country. And we've set, uh, you know, we, we have our, our base rules and it'll be 10% flat forever. Well, now we're gonna need an extra percent. Like uh, it was
0: perfect. Yeah, you know, another thing about like, so the chip and CBDCs and digital ID, right? Same idea all the way down the line. And so there, there will be this like continuing effort to control more as it, as things are falling apart, right? Of course. And part of that is going to be narrative control. And we see that all over the fucking place today, right? It's like so this, this soup we swim in. You open up Twitter and that's basically all you see. Um, but it is interesting. Like, do you guys remember in the movie V for Vendetta? Like when um, uh, Natalie Portman was locked up by v and he kept like trying to get her to to um spill the beans on where he is and she refuses and it's all a big struggle and then she just accepts like she's committed to this thing she doesn't give a fuck what happens and he's like you're totally free and she's all confused she pushes open the door she looks at the the guards their mannequins and she sees how fake her imprisonment was And then the same thing happens to Willing, right? Like they're coming up to Nevada and you hear all this story, like, oh my God, don't go there. Your head will explode. There's landmines. There's like, you know, massive walls, all this kind of shit. And they get there and they just drive right in and they're like, are we in there now? And and they're like, yeah, we're, we're, I think we're in here. And you know, that you get to the strip and it's just, for me, it was like, it was a commentary on the difference between. The narrative that's used to control and box people in versus the reality because they don't have the the resources to to make the narrative real in all places for all people as you guys were just saying like you know there's a ton of space in montana and wyoming and all these places i mean you can't even as powerful and large as the state might be they can't exert control everywhere that's why the narrative control is so important because you get people to you know conform to your dictates voluntarily and then they actually rock up on the scene and they find like, oh, this this was completely like, like it's a complete facade. And they just go in, of course, like there's not even any there's no troops on one side or the other, you know, it's because people, I, I, I guess people are, are blocking or blocking themselves in entirely voluntarily. And so there's no need. But I thought it was interesting to because it, it kind of suggests like, oh, it's really easy to opt out. Like then, it's not as scary as yeah. you might think.
1: The narrative is so effective that they don't actually need uh, enforcement of it. And I, I think if, if there's a single lesson to be taken away from the novel, that is the one. That is the most important one of the whole thing.
4: That's the one that stuck with me. The the thing that like really hit me at the end that you know, a year later, like when I think about the book, this is what I think about, is that perspective, is that the, the, the most valuable thing the system had to control everyone was their fear that the system was had total control was that there was nothing you could do against it that there was no way out that if you walked out if you just stepped across the border your head was going to explode and that 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 frame shift like right after they got across of just like you know I, i i suddenly realized like i suddenly like can look at this thing again and no longer is it like is it this monolith of like godlike power it's just like an ocean of just so much information that is so bloated that is that is such a bad system that like they don't they just don't even know how to handle all of it they don't know what to do with it like it's just like the best they have are these like little like responses or whatnot, like, and, and the things to keep you fearful. Um, and that's like, you know, like from the context of like the CIA and conspiracy theories and all of these things, if I were the CIA, like if I were like an institution like that, it would be very beneficial to me to spread as many conspiracy theories about how fucking powerful and in control I am, you know, because I want people to think is that I can do anything. And we're not just a bunch of, you know, bubbling idiots who target individuals when, when it's useful to target those individuals, but we're just running the show. This whole thing's just puppet. And
3: we got, we got all the strings. It was, um, it's a control on information right like they, yeah. they didn't want any information getting out of nevada and then they were able because they had a handle on that and preventing information from getting out they could spin their own narrative all they
0: wanted well it speaks again and- to the power of narrative be it religious or government fiat dictator or whatever i mean it's narrative even the stories we tell ourselves is basically our identity right who are you and you're like oh like narrative is just integral to how we see the world and if you can co-op that or control it to your own ends it can be a very powerful thing which again i think is why so many bitcoiners are like counter narrative or at least abstaining saying like and this is to matt's point before it's like what's the proper balance between understanding enough of the narratives that are trying to impinge upon your perspective so that you can mediate them properly versus total abstention and just i don't believe anything get the fuck away from me and like what is the proper balance to strike and i you know i think Part of the reason we're all homies and we have discourse on Twitter and all that kind of stuff is because we're all trying to smash our perspectives together and figure out like what is the, the most optimal perspective to have in order to mediate the current circumstances that we're in.
1: I, I personally really enjoyed uh, just the picture in my head of like the, the guy in Nevada, like sitting on his rocking chair. And he's just like, I've just watched so many people just go through this narrative bullshit and just come out the other side and realize their head's not going to blow off
0: yeah when they first go in you know that's, that's what a, i would do i was just sit yeah, on watch, like, watch all these people freak the fuck out but you know what maybe maybe willing is to like the, the what we open with maybe he is the Bitcoiner because you remember at the end when um Nolly had like her i'm just gonna say it. she had her gold and she was like you know what would you do with it And i think was it jared who was just like yeah like had no real answer and then willing just went on like a a rant about like having kids and building this and bringing the family together and doing all like rebuilding civilization basically was his answer. Mm -hmm. And she was like, that's a fucking answer. I want to hear it's yours, you know, go and do it, you know? So, and, and, you know, another last comment maybe about willing was I think, and not to, you know, no disclosures or pressure on anyone's medical choices here, but he was forced to get shipped and he, he articulated how he felt he'd lost something when that happened to him. Like he had all this kind of spunk and pizzazz as a younger kid. And then when he was forced to get chipped because he needed it to to work and be a part of the the society, he felt like he was like neutered or, or I think he used the term rape, right? Like yeah, he, yeah, felt he did. Like he, he specifically said rape. Yeah. yeah and he, he could now appreciate uh, that word. And when people used to say it and like over the last 2 years how many times have people made that correlation between forced vaccination and you know feeling of losing your body auto- bodily autonomy being raped that kind of thing and what does that you know what does that take away from you and i guess the answer is different for every single person uh, but for him in this story like it was very disempowering and then when he got to the free state shortly thereafter at i think great expense he had his chip removed and he commented how much it made him feel liberated again and feel like alive and strong. And I think his great aunt even commented like you're, you're back or something like you're, you're more vigorous again, or you're like the old willing is back or something to that effect.
1: I mean, she was you super so prescient really- on that point because like, it mm-hmm. wasn't even, I mean, you use the word forced, It was a soft pressure, right? Which is exactly what we saw in 2020, which is, do you want this job? Do you want to go
3: to this restaurant? Do you want to shop at this store? Do you want to travel to this place? Yeah. Still your choice, but if you choose this, then most of your life goes away.
0: Yeah, you're destitute. So what kind of choice? I mean, it's straight up coercion, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, it it was exactly that. And you know, I don't want to make I don't want to make this overly political but i found it interesting in one of the interviews i listened to her um she voted for biden in 2020 let's say and i just like i'm i'm not very politically involved i don't think our solutions are political in nature but just on the face of it like to me it seemed obvious at the time that with a democrat in the white house and given trump's kind of uh, behavior of like deregulating and that kind of stuff, like I felt it was somewhat obvious that you put a Democrat in there, you're going to get a lot more of the big spending, a lot more of the regulations, a lot more of the identity politics, a lot more of the, you know, taxation and that kind of stuff. And she rightly identified those things as being very dangerous in the book years earlier. But then when it came time in the real world to identify those threats, let's say, and potentially mitigate them. She went the other direction. And then, of course, you know, in the interview that I listened to her, she was extremely regretful that she had, you know, voted that way because she was extremely disappointed at how things had turned out. But um, I don't know. I I found that to be an interesting. I thought
1: she did a pretty good job in the novel of like I got the vibe that she was, you know, she didn't identify with with national political parties and that she was a relative free thinker. Um, no, and i think she saying. did a, yeah I'm she saying. did a decent she did a decent job with it um i mean she even has like this specific part in the book when they're talking about jared the guy who has citadel or whatever um and saying that he was like uh like a far left extremist and then it just took like a little bit of just it took a little bit of the world to hit him to just turn him into a libertarian gun nut you know and uh I thought she balanced it really well. And I think that made it a lot better because, I mean, you could, I mean, you could really ruin this novel with, if you were partisan on one side or the other.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I I just, the policies that ruined the, like what was happening in the book seemed to be more uh, amenable to like a a left sort of policy thing. Yeah. She was specifically
1: Um, critical to the left, like in terms of the national politics, because it seems like the national politics were left dominant. Yeah, um, throughout the whole book.
0: Yeah, that was my impression for sure. Yeah, that um, surprised me,
2: John. That, that she voted for Biden? Because I know she's written some some fairly um, some articles on immigration specifically that I think a lot of people would consider very radical, um, not in that direction. So that's, um, that's I, I I find her. I think part of the, the reason this book is fascinating and she's fascinating is because. She truly feels like kind of an outside perspective on a lot of this stuff. And I I think she's still sort of beholden to, you know, uh, the like writer milieu, um, you know, she lives in London I'm sure she hangs around with, like, I'm, I'd be curious to know what the social implications were of her writing this book, because like who in her little writer circle is going to be able to sort of appreciate this.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I know, you know, she's been very critical of basically, I think what a lot of us would be critical on the last two years, the government overreach, the spending, the VAX stuff, like she's just been very vocal against all of that. And again, like in those circles that she, you know, might uh, ride in, like, what's it like to come up against that? Because th- like those circles are probably skew towards more sort of liberal uh, stances on things. But again, I mean, this book, we're having this discussion at an interesting time because I don't want to be too, um, hopeful about, you know, change that's occurring because so much of it is happening right now, but it, you're getting a little bit of like pendulum swingy sort of vibes. Are you not these days that like, yeah, there's almost, there's like some good development seemingly happening. And now to the point about like Weimar and gold and like, maybe it's just a, a brief reprieve before the next absolute, mm-hmm. you know, egregious onslaught of things. But uh, it might be the case that like books like this and conversations like this and everything that's been going on, like it, it's just, it's gone too far in one direction. And even those people that were formerly very gung ho about the policies that have wound, got us here are starting to, you know, question whether or not they were the right policies. And, and then, of course, they're looking at other jurisdictions and other groups of people, Bitcoiners, Florida, Texas, whatever, and being like, eh, it looks like it's like they're doing pretty good over there. So, yeah. you know, maybe I need to reassess my stance on. Look, I
1: mean, I, th- I think it's good to be optimistic. And I think uh, people like to hear optimistic takes. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we tend to especially public individuals tend to lean towards optimistic because no one wants to hear a, you know, a downer all the time. Um, But my vote is clearly in the reprieve uh, category, a temporary reprieve category. And I think she actually does a really good job about it in the novel in terms of Goog, which by the way, one of my least favorite parts of the novel was just like the heavy handedness that she like named the two kids, like Bing and Goog, like no one in their right mind is going to name them after Google and Bing. But yeah, um, the the like goog is completely co-opted into the, like the statism track right and that is something i see all the time and i'm sure you guys see that all the time specifically in and with friends like long standing friends and family i mean we saw it through 2020 um, that are not in bitcoin circles um, where they justified and they try and justify like he is literally at the end there like he is ready to sick drones on you know, his family member that he's been through all of this shit with He for like 25 years. They went through like the worst of the worst and grew up together through all of that. And he was like, I am going to fuck you because you're not listening to these rules that the state is imposing.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I, gonna be I think there is.
3: There. I think that, <sighs> it's tough to to see what what the the general sentiment of everyone is, because I think right now, the pendulum had swung so far, and there could very well be a reprieve for a a number of years. But I do think that inside of the 2020s, we'll see a decisive start to swing back, you know, um, maybe towards the end of the decade. But I, I see a lot from you know, there's still the the extremes on on one far side of the spectrum where it's like, you know, okay, let's let's bring back all of the mandates and stuff like that. The the people that are just they found solace in in that overreach because they felt like, like somebody was doing something and they feel protected. But then I I also have a fair number of friends who you know, went a little bit in that direction. Um, and and now I'm starting to see the cracks. I'm starting to see the, uh, is, is it, do we need this anymore? Or or is that, is that take reasonable? Or is it okay to say this doesn't make sense in, in all kinds of whether it be socially or medically or, or whatever the, the issue may be? I'm starting to see those hints. And I think a lot of it can be underlying like people think things but they don't want to say it because they'll get cancelled um and i think it's just a question of how much of a swell of that does it take for people to finally be vocal about it and and move on it um so yeah i i don't know kind of where we're at but i'm starting to see the inklings of of people that previously said nothing but now are starting to dip their toes into disagreement with the current thing
0: yeah which is great but to matt's point about it potentially being a reprieve like how if it is just kind of like aren't things kind of not right then how much can they just step in with narrative or how much can a little bit of narrative control bring them back into the fold and legitimize everything once again right and maybe that's why you know we have that
1: i mean I think like as bitcoiners are going to learn like a harsh lesson lesson on this because I mean our federal government shut down small businesses they're like the most loved people in this country and there was little pushback and we're not that big of a community or that loved like to turn the narrative on bitcoiners is is super easy and what we see what we see historically with government overreach right is kind of what we were talking about earlier with the grind like this grind theory which is they grind farther and farther and they take more and more. um, And then they give you, but then they give you like a slight reprieve that everyone gets to feel happy about. So like recently, like we all got to feel really happy that we don't have to wear masks on an airplane anymore, right? Like that two years ago, that would have been fucking ridiculous for people to be happy about. But we got that going for us. But meanwhile, you know, I sold soccer tickets the other day because I got stuck in season tickets when I left New York that auto renewed. And I made a $3 profit and Ticketmaster won't release it unless I file tax documents, which like, I'm fine paying taxes on my $3, whatever, whatever, but like, I got to go through that whole process and, you know, fill out the privacy forms, you know, dox myself completely to Ticketmaster, like upload my social security number and shit. And it's like, so they take all these other things behind the surface and then they give you one nice shiny thing that they just took away from you to begin with. And then they give that back to you. Right.
2: Yeah, and I think the other factor kind of pointing in the, in the mass reprieve direction is just how unable the millennials and Gen Z are to to establish self-sovereignty at this point, like the number of millennials that can afford a house or, you know, a lot of their own property, um, those generations are so in, indebted and so disenfranchised from being able to live the kind of life that people have typically. Uh, you know, in the past 60, 70 years that I think they'll be much more amenable to narrative shift and control because they've they've got nothing else and they're kind of on board.
0: That's a very good point. And I agree. You know, maybe we should get uh, CK, you know, because he hands out the sovereign individual all over the place, right? Maybe we should get him to hand out the mandibles with it. Be like, if you don't do this, this is what you're going to get, right? It's one or the other. I think
2: The Mandibles is way more potent because I think everybody's snoozing by page 30 of The Sovereign Individual. But uh, The Mandibles is, is it's a narrative structure. The they're basically the same book.
1: They're basically the same book, just one's written like a textbook, and then one is, one is a nice, easy to digest fiction novel. I think it's why Atlas Shrugged has the
0: legacy that it has. It's yeah. fiction. You know, I, I, this goes back to the point uh, right at the beginning, but I just, whether it's like, we often say this with Bitcoin, right? But I think it's also the case with the, with the unfolding events in this book is the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? Like some people live in that circumstance right now. And the fact that prices at the grocery store just went up 20% over the last year has pushed way more people into that circumstance and then people that were in that like intermediary bad circumstances pushed them even further right and what's interesting about this book is like it takes you along each frame of this grinding journey right so like you can really get a sense and an uncomfortable sense of like which or how each stage kind of feels and you know so we often use that uh phrase in reference to like some of us are living you know we've gone through the bitcoin wormhole and we're living a deflationary life and things are better and relationships are good and wealth is growing and all that kind of stuff which is great and more people need to step through that wormhole but for a lot of other people like that is the what the events in this book are not on the horizon they're like super real right now i mean can you bring back up the same point basically but can you even imagine what it's like when you see all these homeless people on the street in san francisco and all that kind of stuff it's like it's not like they started out that way for most of them it's not like you know they had a childhood that was materially different from any of us perhaps like you know had some friends played on the street went to school and like a series of life events or circumstances that you can't extricate yourself from james to your point just now about like the the millennial generation like if there's a pretty strong ceiling to like above which they're not going to have available to them well what like, below that ceiling, what kind of emotions get stirred up? What kind of perspective gets generated? What kind of like value systems get constructed? And, you know, how much do they further skew that person toward bad outcomes versus, you know, good outcomes that would lead them up beyond that ceiling. And if that, if that ceiling becomes more cemented, like harder, steel instead of glass, you know, how does the uh, deprivation of hope, let's say, ca- cause an acceleration of winding up in, in those circumstances whereby, holy shit, like I'm, I'm 37 years old and I'm sleeping in a tent on the side of the road. And I never fucking, I'm not one of those people. Like I'm, I'm a normal person, not a, not a homeless person on the street. And the reality is there's no fucking difference, you know, like it's just mm. series of events and yeah, how many of those
4: were small business owners two years ago.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know, so I get goosebumps now just saying it because it's so like you, you, we just default to thinking like I'm a different person than them. Like I, like that's not possible for me. And maybe, you know, for us on this call, because we're so proactive in that domain, hopefully we'll all be able to avoid that outcome in life, but it's not like, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that are not of your own choosing that you can't just flip on or off no matter how you know, pragmatic or proactive you are. And, you know, so, so, so a lot of those people were just victims of, of circumstance and fate. And, and mm-hmm. others, you know, I mean, I see it, the restaurant and, and small business thing is such a good example because like you get ground down for two years, you're fighting as hard as you can. You've got debt, you were barely surviving before, like all this kind of stuff, expenses and everything. And then you just, you end up being like, I, I can't do it anymore. And you give up. And then you can't find a job that's commensurate with your income level, or or maybe if you can't can't even find a job that's sufficient to, you know, keep up with your expenses. So you go into debt and then you start doing the food stamp thing and you rely on family members. And then if the broader circumstance or situation doesn't improve, then that's the grinding down. And then you find yourself, you know, substituting hedonic adjustments all the way down until you're fucking eating, you know, Cheerios for every single meal. And then, you know, if an opportunity arises to take something when I'm in, you know, my friend's house or the shopping mall or whatever, eh, yeah, maybe I do it because it'll help feed my fucking kid and who's who's not going to do that, you know? And so like, you can, it's just, I guess it's just a commentary on how easy it is to think that like, these are worlds apart and different people when really like, it's just life events, many of which are not of your own choosing that could easily lead you down well, lead you down crazy roads i mean we could also make the the analogy to like you know weimar germany where all those germans horrible people that just you know were bloodthirsty and all that kind of stuff of course not but victims of circumstance victims of narrative you know uh, delusion illusion wishful thinking all this stuff plays and and i think again that's why what brings us so many of us back to this idea of truth like that's the value of it. We're trying, to, we're trying to orient ourselves most towards what is real so that when we decide our behaviors in relation to that, we can optimize them for the outcome that we're hoping to achieve. And um, yeah, that's the end of my spiel there. Yeah, I think what's,
2: what's so cathartic about reading this book for people like us is that, John, to your, to your really good point, it is kind of a journey back to the real, back to truth. But what's equally terrifying about this book is just how ugly that path is, and you know, the visceral reminder all throughout the book of, of what it looks like and what happens. Um, and it's really scary.
3: I think we all uh, also to, again to that same point, the, we, we all know some googs in our lives. Uh, I definitely have friends that have very much manifested goog. And his uh, willingness to to at all costs um, enact the the desire of the state on on their friends and family and and disown them if they choose not to, which has been that was kind of that was one of the more aggravating parts of reading this book because I know those people and there's there's more of them than there were in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it's more prevalent across people that I know than it was. Cause like Google was like the, the standout, Hey, I am the state. I am the one that's going to come and ruin the party for the rest of you. Or like, you know, make it, make this horrible party worse than it already is. Um, there, but so many people are, are, are too keen to jump into that role. And, you know, near the end, or, or when there's the jump forward and, and he's well into his government job um, and he comes in and everybody's just, you know, they, they, they don't have much to their name. So the dinner party isn't really much of a dinner party. And then he slams down a bottle of cognac and, you know, he's, he's got the, the government perks of being in his position. And so again, it's this this skew of well everybody needs to do their part unless you're like you're telling the line for the state in which case you you get a little bit of you get a little bit of a kickback from that so um yeah anyways i just wanted to highlight that uh the i definitely was a little sad realizing uh that so many people would so willy-nilly just drop into that way of yeah life. I
1: mean, I, I another thing I noticed with the book is something that we see all the time, which is after you got the chip, it's just like everyone just assumes they can hear everything, which is we see that with the phones right now, where people just assume they're like, "I'm always being listened to," like I basically I've already lost all my privacy. There's there's nothing worse I can give up, um, which I, I it just hit that one hit me really hard because I just see it on a day to day basis. Um, but one optimistic takeaway I would say is first of all her focus was mainly on new york city we didn't see outside of new york city which i personally loved because i lived in new york city for a while so i just like when things touch points that i that i'm aware of um but to me like this whole idea of nevada is kind of a metaphor for how i kind of expect at least on the longer term for this stuff to play out which is you know they get to nevada and the guy says right away he's like you have no money None of your money is worth anything here. You need to basically put in proof of work uh, to have any value, and it is what you make of it. So it's not a utopia. It's not something um, that is perfect by any means. There's despair. There's hardship. Uh, but if you put in work, uh, you will be you will at least be able to operate under you know a fair wealth standard, a fair monetary standard, and that's kind of how I view like the most optimistic case pretty much, for Bitcoin, which is there will be pockets of Nevada everywhere. Um, And then outside of those pockets, there's going to be absolute despair and tragedy. And inside of those pockets, there will at least be ladders of a rung you can climb um, if you put the work in.
0: Hope.
4: This is going to be the wake up call for millennials and Gen Z. Um, And everybody who has a you know women's studies degree um going going (laughs) back to
0: the uh the or or economists like the uncle economists yeah Mm. (laughs) i still can't believe how different a reading of this would be now versus like 2018 i mean the experience of reading that book would just be so it's like totally different which is an interesting comment interesting commentary on how the meaning and impact of books changes over time because the circumstance in which they're being read changes. You know, I wonder how much, you know, like pick, pick a book you like, like doors of perception by Aldous Huxley perhaps like what's the impact of that book in, was it written in the fifties or sixties? I think like, how does that book read in the context of that time versus our time after the sixties, after what, you know, research on psychedelics, after all this other literary literary work that came out as a result of that you know it's like meaning and this is why history a study of history is so difficult because meaning changes so much over time like you take a text from the 17th century and it's like you know it's profound in some way and it was popular at the time but what does a reading of it in today's time with today's cultural framing and stuff what meaning is conveyed you know i would assume that for most books it's at least partially different and for some it's like tremendously different
1: this is one of the reasons why I was really excited to have this conversation because I really look forward to looking back on it in five years and seeing how much our opinions have changed on this book. Yeah, yeah. there's point. something uh, that stuck with me. I, I've heard this probably a million and a
4: half years ago, um, but it's something that always like is like a frame of reference, a little grain of sand that stays with me all the time, is the idea that futuristic novels and science fiction and dystopias and like all of these things, we, we kind of have like this naive impression, like just consuming them, that they're about the future. Mm-hmm. And you realize when you actually read them and particularly when you are in the future and you look back, that they're about today. They're about when they were written is what the story is actually about. Like, like, for instance, like all of the big budget, like movies or whatever, the bad guy is literally a metaphor for climate change in all of them. And I feel like in 20 years, that's going to be like bullshit. We're going to look back and be like, Oh my God, that's right. You know? Um, But, uh, and that'll, that'll be fun to uh, find out who was right and or wrong on that whole shebang. But it's, it's a, it's a good example of like, this is we're getting into this this weird space is like this is what we see as the future this is kind of like the hopelessness and the era that we're moving through and it's becoming more and more obvious that this is this is some part of our future That, that um particularly bitcoiners are waking up to the fact that there's a there's a hell of a thing to deal with like just on the horizon um like there's a storm there's a big big ass storm um, and we can pretend it's not there and we can be apathetic and just say, fuck all this stuff. But our whole job is to prepare and realize that the job of all this stuff, like we're like we're not going to just be able to buy Bitcoin and ride the shit out. Um, the whole point of Bitcoin is readjusting, is, is realigning us with the real world. Like the whole point of Bitcoin is to destroy the, the finance, the paper financing machine that took all our manufacturing way that that made uh, certain like boots on the ground, dirty jobs unprofitable, undesirable, and made it so that everybody could think that all you have to do is have a women's studies degree and you know work in HR and you're gonna you're gonna cruise through life when you're not actually producing anything for society. We have a multi-billion dollar industry just to teach people, just to do people's taxes for them, just to fill out fucking paperwork.
2: Well, like, and what's so cool about the book is- That is, is a is, suck on society, you know? Like- what, what I love about the book is that, you know, the women's studies thing, it's true, but it's like, everybody kind of knows that. But but I, I think not everybody realizes how meaningless so much of what people do, how completely virtualized, how like living yeah. in a spreadsheet for, you know, doing uh, as a CPA for, for some startup that's doing Tinder for dogs, like how just completely misallocated yeah. that is yeah. and off the map it is, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the therapist one too is a big- was probably a big hit for a lot of people uh, there, you know, being a therapist, not being a job that people care about in a chaos situation. Economist obviously was an obvious one. I mean, she just hit so many different points. Once again, it's just that, like, we haven't even talked at all about that. She just nonchalantly talks about the majority of the workforce is uh, mechanized. It's just, they call them robs, right? Like there's just these robots have taken a ton of menial, menial jobs off the market. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, it will be to, I think, everyone's points just now. Like, we, I think, Guy, you said, like, people are writing about the future, but it's a commentary on the current time. Because if if you asked 10 journalists or 10 economists or 10 of any sort of writer person, characterize, articulate our current time, you probably get a pretty large variety, like, pretty divergent characterizations of, like, what our world looks like today, or even what the country looks like, or what even a like a certain subculture looks like. And then it's borne out through the course of history, which one was most accurate, like which which perception was the most clear. And, and perhaps, you know, that's how history gets at least partially studied is like it becomes evident which accounts were the most accurate and they become the most credible and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it will be interesting to see, you know, how this book stands up over the course of time. And if her assessment of, of things, uh, holds up. I, I mean, obviously we think it, it will to a certain degree. And I want to add that, you know, a lot has been made of the whole, uh, money is stored energy. That phrase was actually in the book as well. I don't know if you guys caught that, but I'm not sure if it was Lowell or willing or one of them, but you know, when I, when I read it, I thought of, uh, our friend, Michael Saylor, of course.
2: What's amazing about that book is that no character is a straw man even, you know, the economists on the other side who are representing, say, the Keynesian or the MMT, like, they're they're articulate. I think they do a good job of representing the the, the true points. Um, she just did such a, an incredible job of emulating the different perspectives and, and really, you know, illustrating them.
0: I agree. Um, last one for me, because I'm sure everyone's got stuff to do, but what did you guys think? And again, this is a big spoiler, but uh, when douglas just they were sitting around the campfire like right when they were heading out of town and blew his wife away and then blew himself away that was pretty abrupt and shocking to me
3: i mean it pretty much caps off the 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 first half of the book right like it's right
0: (laughs) but he was like he was always so chill and okay with things and you can just imagine him sitting around there and being like oh well this is clearly the the most reasonable you know rational thing to do in this situation we're just going to be a drag on them we might foil the whole plan so okay bang bang problem solved i mean i mean i
1: appreciated he's always a character that very much you know seemed very personal responsibility forward um didn't like people taking care of him and uh i mean obviously there was a there there's a responsibility there on him to do that because no one else had the heart to do that. Um, But I do like the little added bonus that he like taught him how to use the gun before he did it as well, which was like a, I passed down this personal responsibility to you. And now I'm going to take the ultimate form of personal responsibility.
4: And this whole book, um, like, I feel like like really embodies the lesson of like what we've talked about in this is that, you know, everything is a trend, like, like the big movements and the big shifts don't really matter. They're, they're usually the culmination after the trend has moved in that direction for a very, very long time, very quietly, very slowly, you know, every big thing in the world happens after 10,000 tiny incremental movements that way. And this is kind of like the loss and the, the the final flood of nihilism of that character like the the final giving up of you know trying to take responsibility throughout the whole thing and then um basically just like the hope just when it finally crashes it just crashes completely um and it's just it's just time to cut the light fucking lights off and and just be done with that um and uh uh, it's one of those things that like the same thing that you see happening in society where horrible horrible events occur just because we got we we just you know took that that one turn in the wrong direction and just incrementally went further and further and further and we never figured out how to stop and just just start moving back in the opposite direction that you have this same thing happening internally too in every individual that they get further and further from truth they get further and further from meaning and anything in their life they can actually hope for or hang on to. Um, and it's also why I think like, like being pessimistic, whether, God, whether or not it's realistic, optimism is the only path. Um, because pessimism leads you down. Like, like you can be, you can be realistic and optimistic. There's no, there's no value in expecting, in, in expecting things are going to get to worse to the point that you can't do anything about it like the the best thing you can do is do what you can do like that's it that's it and keep keep fight the increment and see if you can't get one percent. you can't beat just the incremental thing in the wrong direction and get one percent in the other and on a long enough timeline, you win like but you just have to fucking keep going and you have to believe that at the end of this it's not going to be so fucking bad. we're going to figure something out. Society does shift back, it just does. And I think we're in a better position, like look at the narrative breaking down. It is happening. More people are talking about this and this is, we are openly ridiculing the, the authorities that are not supposed to be questioned in a hilarious and meme worthy fashion with hundreds of thousands of tweets and retweets in real time. That is, that is a sign of good in my opinion, even when, even when it completely fails and it's for a stupid reason, just the sheer fact that we can ridicule them and lower their importance, means that we are just so slightly, even if it's just at a mental level, less dependent on their version of the world. Um, and, and I think that's, I hope that's our goal. You know, I hope that's like our mission is just, just fight the increment, just fight the increment and, and believe Whether it's realistic or not, I think it is realistic. I'm a rational optimist. I like to think, but shit is going to get better. Shit is going to get better, and and the the only way that does is if we believe it's going to get better, and we therefore work for it. You know, work and building is the only thing that gets us there.
0: So I think it also could be the and first of all, I mean how that whole dynamic of people being able to speak their mind on Twitter. I mean, how lit is that about to get with Elon taking over Twitter and like, what is the discourse (laughs) going to look like when there's presumably going to be less censorship of stuff? Like it, it could get pretty wild, but, um, I, I totally agree with your point, uh, guy. My, like, I guess closing remark is like, there's so many instances and moments in my life today that are outstanding. Like just, couldn't get any better. And so it's like, like we were saying before about a spectrum of things, like it's already fucking incredible on sometimes. Right. And maybe that's 1% of the time, or maybe that's 50% of the time, but like, there's a bunch of things you can't control. And there's a bunch of things that you have some influence on and maybe some control over. Right. So like, is not your task to simply try to improve those things that you have control over. And then there has to be some degree of acceptance for the things that you legitimately cannot change, right? And I think that acceptance delivers some type of a, a piece, you know, even if you would still lament the outcomes of those things that you can't control. But I think, you know, like a, as we shift into, presume, you know, a transition, and if it is going to get kind of, you know, messy over the intervening five or 10 years, like I think we have to, or I try to remember not to like, if I doom scroll on Twitter for too long and I come away with like a sour mood that things are so fucked, I like, I try to remember that that is just a frame and that is just a slice of what's happening. And there's a lot of other incredible shit that counterbalances that. And I try to place my focus there and amplify those things rather than, you know, getting upset about the absolute retarded stuff that I can't really control. So that's my final words. You guys, anything any last words before we shut it down?
3: I just want to see more, uh, to be honest, I'd like to see more fiction that uh, fits into kind of uh, the ethos that a lot a of Bitcoin us fiction. A- align with. Um, I agree. I, I, I did meet uh, 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 a really cool guy down when I was in Costa Rica, a Canadian expat, um, and he's in the midst of writing some Bitcoin based fiction. But like, is that what you is that what you gave me? That's i read it I oh did read you read it that was did fun it. yeah 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 so yeah um i'm i'm and i'm excited for him to to do some stuff but i'd love to see some more even just on a on a uh you know the, the lessons taught therein or, or 10 10 tangentially I'm, I'm missing my words <laughs> here sorry <laughs> but you know like can be kind of related
0: back to bitcoin um i think there's so, going to be an explosion of that kind of stuff. I really yeah. do. Cause I mean, if this is as meaningful to us all as it's seeming to be, I think it's just going to inspire that stuff, not just uh, fiction. It'll inspire philosophical writing and inspire work of various kinds, but it just seems like it's going to inspire like an explosion of creation, basically.
1: I mean, I just want to thanks John for hosting us. Uh, I think it is an important conversation. Um, and just so to people listening to this, you know, get your shit in order. Uh, no one's going to get your shit in order for you. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I think personally, I think the power of the individual is extremely powerful um, both for the individual, but at scale, if, if we're all aligned um, we can make real actionable change, real, real things can change for the better. And I just want to second, you know, what Guy said, which is, is basically this idea of like pragmatic optimism Um Unfortunately, I think that for the majority of people, they're going to need to get absolutely burned before they do anything. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't be optimistic for the future. It doesn't mean that we can't make real beneficial change, uh, both in the short-term, medium-term, and long-term.
0: Totally. Yeah, I'll leave James, it you got them. anything? Go ahead.
2: Thanks to you, John, for putting this together. Um, I love the book, and I just think it – it totally exemplifies what one path in front of us could look like in terms of moving away from the virtual and back to the real. And, um, I think we've got some wild shit ahead of us, so get ready to ride that out. But thanks again, John.
0: Yeah.
4: Yo. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll close it out just with same thing. Um, thanks. This is a, uh... This was a really cool book for me. Um, and uh, like, like I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan of fiction. I kind of go back and forth and I can probably consume like three or four books a month. Like Audible gets so much of my money. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, But I'm also, I, I really try to be an optimist. You know, like every, every terrible thing that has happened in society, there was, we came out the other side you know, it's not we're like still here. humanity is dead yet. Like, like we're still here um, and it is a cycle. And, you know, there's also a degree of, you know, like be happy with the responsibility it mm. is that like, I feel I'm competent. Like, I feel like, I mean, I fuck up all the time, but like, I don't trust letting somebody else take care of it for me you know like like if there was ever a time that we could live through would bitcoiners really be happy if everything was boring and there was no challenge here you know like like it it, isn't this where you find meaning is when shit falls apart and you figure out what you actually needed to build and what was actually important that we lost um that's that's where meaning comes from like when everything's great you know nothing matters, you know um and and I also agree with sessions over there is is the idea of narrative um is as I feel like Bitcoin is really missing that, and if I get off my ass, I've got a really fun little story that I want to finish um and uh hopefully hopefully that will be something sooner rather than later uh but right story right story, and something that I would tell myself. Is be afraid to write a bad story so that you can try to get a good story. You know, like probably my biggest thing is insecurity, um, of about like finishing it and letting somebody else read it. Um, it's really easy to be an idea, a vague idea. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, revel revel in the fact that we get to be the generation that takes the responsibility and fixes shit. Um, because I think we got,
0: I think we got a chance of doing it. Beautifully said beautifully said and i i love how fuck you money is giving so many people the confidence where perhaps it didn't exist before to express themselves in whatever way writing stories entrepreneurship speaking their mind doing shit online like just getting it out there and and being okay with you know that and the feedback that comes and trying to you know try to further understanding or or refine a perspective as a result of doing that so Gents, I appreciate the time. It was awesome to see you all in Miami recently, and I hope we get to see each other again soon. So take care. Talk soon.
1: Cheers. Oh yeah, man. Thanks, Peace. dude.